blacksmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them all together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, men, yes, you can stand, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you that. I thought of that afterwards, but I'm like, okay, it's okay. Um, so we're back to Demetrius, who's kind of having a problem because um, his business is being affected. Okay, so he called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and he said, men, you know, if we, we have received a good income from the, this business. And you see and hear about how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Articus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? and of her image, which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples or blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you may want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we must not be able to account for all this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Please remain standing and join me in, pray, in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we ask for your blessing and anointing to be on our pastor as he brings forth your word with boldness to Refuge Church this morning. We thank you for the privilege that we can worship here freely and ask a blessing upon this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. God bless you. <clears throat> it's so good to be together on the Lord's Day to worship Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. I need a sip of water. So yesterday was just a really great time, and I wanted to thank you for your creativity and for your hard work, and just thanks uh, to Heather for kind of being a, just our administrative leader and just leading everybody. Um, it's just a very great end, so thank you, Heather, very much for doing such a great job. 
<laughs> and gosh, you guys are overachievers. Just really creative. Um, and we, we had easily a couple hundred people here yesterday. And just uh, what a great victory that was. Just all the Bibles that went out and gospel tracts and invitations. We're just going to take a moment actually to pray for, for the people that we got to interact with. I'm sure many of you, I know I did, were able to have just good conversations about Christ and um, to pray with people and meet them and meet their families. You know, so what a great opportunity that was. And um, I just want to uh, just pray really quickly just for the, the many guests that were here that God just works in their hearts. So if you just join me. God, you're so good to us, and we just thank you. We give you great praise for the opportunity, Lord, that we had yesterday to just interact with our neighbors around this area. We pray, Lord, that you would... Um, just to bring to surface those, those uh, Bibles and those tracts and invitations that, um, that talk to them about Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't get lost in the candy um, or thrown away by accident, God. I pray, Lord, that they would actually take time to read these things. And God, even if it leads uh, none of them to our church in particular, I pray, Lord, that it would lead them to faith in Jesus Christ and to fellowship with your people somewhere, Lord, where they can grow in their faith um, in Christ. God, we thank you, Lord, for this service. We thank you for your people, and we thank you for your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so um, we had a little secret contest yesterday. I don't know if you knew about it or not, but um, we, we decided that we would have a secret best car contest, and we have a winner. Um, do you want to know who the winner is? All right, drum roll. <laughs> the winner is, hold on. The game's trunk, Carol. <laughs> Ronnie went around asking just kind of random people what's the best one, and Carol, Carol rose to the surface. But we got a lot of, there was stiff competition. There were, almost every car was named, you know, so, but Carol's the winner. Thank you, Carol. She was very creative yesterday. Um, so that, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I want to remind you, too, we already mentioned it, but our meeting, it's going to be really awesome. This, this, uh, this meeting coming up, we're a potluck. We're actually going to have an elder installation. We voted on two new pastors um, a couple of weeks at our last meeting for um, Pat, um, Pastor Joe Marin and uh, Morgan Creaney. Um, so we're actually going to have like just a little installation ceremony. It's going to be a lot of fun um, this this coming meeting. So just be at that. And also we're going to be voting on Chris Fortune as a new member. You know, so um, that's going to be cool too. Who's not here? That's not good for him. <laughs> All right, very good. Those of you who might be new and just look, kind of looking for just some company, some fellowship, to some interaction, we do have gospel communities, um, and that's in your, in your program. We have one in, it's like a small home group. It's one in Fall River, one in Warren. And the, the information of the person, of the home that those are led at, they're, they're right on their emails and phone numbers, I think. So just encourage you guys to do that. So we, we approach this passage of Scripture <clears throat> kind of lengthy, and... Also, if you were paying attention and, and just kind of listening to the narrative of the story, it just seems a little kind of bizarre. Um, what, what can we really learn from this? What, what, how can this help me live my everyday life better? What is, what is God teaching us here? Seems kind of like a, a, a whole group of people at a certain town were ticked off at Paul as usual, and the, the town just got whipped into this frenzy, wanted to rip his head off, and then the clerk stands up, which is very interesting, um, at the end of this commotion, what we usually see in the book of Acts, at the end of the commotions, Paul stands up and addresses the crowd. But here a pagan clerk who believes in the divine nature of some pagan goddess, Artemis, stands up and calms the crowd down. Very interesting story. 
Now, there's a lot that we could say about this, and if you've been with us for any amount of time, we've been going through the book of Acts, um, not, not, not too slowly, but not too quickly either. Um, you know, so it's hard to always kind of explain every single verse that's, because that's, um, we're taking more of like a bird's eye um, view of the book of Acts. It's a, it's a very lengthy book. And um, so perhaps some of your questions about the text might not be answered, but I want to make some important points about it. I think they're very relative, uh, relevant to our lives um, and very important to our lives. So the book of Acts is basically about the earliest and most pure forms of authentic Christianity. So if you're sitting here today and you're wondering, you're wondering, what is Christianity? Or you're thinking, I wonder if the way Christianity has been explained to me really is what Christianity is. The book of Acts is a really great place to go because it's the earliest Christianity. It explains what the church is supposed to be. Um, and that's why we go to it as a church, as a very new church. We go to this because we want to help ourselves as a new church understand what is our mission, what's our vision. How do we interact with each other? How do we worship Jesus? We don't want to just make, it, make things up as we go and misrepresent to the world what the Christian church is. Because how many people in here know that most people that aren't part of the Christian church only see what we do, and they think that's what Jesus is about. And that's, that's, their, that's their view of it. That's their picture of it. So we want to make sure that we get this right, right? <laughs> so that's why we come here. <clears throat> so we approach chapter 19 um, of, the, of the book of Acts, and in the narrative of Acts, we see a very common theme, and that is idolatry. Now this ver seems very archaic. <clears throat> this seems very archaic, very primitive, not very much part of like, the way that we do things in American culture. But really, this is about idolatry. And you can recall some sermons from the past in the book of Acts that I've talked about idolatry already. And here again, I think we're going to have to deal with this a little bit more fully because all this is about, all chapter 19 is about, is the worship of idols. These people in Ephesus got challenged about their idols, and they didn't like it. That's basically what's happened. And friend, if you're here this morning, and I want to try to prove this to you throughout the sermon, but we all have idols, we all worship them, and when anyone touches them, challenges them, you don't like it. You yelp. It's very, very important. This is extremely, extremely relevant to our lives because there is only one God, the God of heaven, and all the little gods that we make all around us, the things that we worship, disappoint us. So let's take a look at this passage more fully and look at the subject of idolatry more completely. It's an important theme in scripture because idolatry is basically all of humankind's substitute for what should be an unbroken love relationship with our creator, our king, and our God in heaven. You see, all of us decide, but that's what the Bible calls sin, all of us decide to not worship God, to not have a relationship with God on that level. So we replace him with other things. That's idolatry. We worship other things. We, we make other things most important that should be less important than our God in heaven. And that's all idolatry is. It's making a God out of something that he has created. The fallen human heart, your human heart, longs for divine connection. You, you say, I don't believe in God. Well, you still long for divine connection. And my proof for that is that you will spend the rest of your life trying to complete yourself in some kind of marriage. 
He say, not, and I don't mean physical marriage. Maybe that's what it is. But a marriage to something, something to make you whole, happy, complete. And that might be a woman, that might be a man, that might be a job. You see, only God can do that. Marriage to God is what your human heart longs for. And until you find rest, have we heard this before? Until you find rest in him, you find no rest at all. All people for all time possess the nagging sense that they are dependent, connected to something greater, something outside of us. And we need to be connected to that. It's a very basic human need. C.S. Lewis, um, in a classic lecture called The Weight of Glory, said, Idols are the scent of a flower we have not found. Idols are the scent of a flower we have not found. We go sniffing about, looking for God in all of creation, and never find him. Because God is not his creation. It is not. And I hope as we explore this text that we're going to see more clearly what Lewis meant. So this morning we're going to take a look at the idols we love. The idols we love. In that idols, three points, idols dominate, idols substitute, and idols ruin. Idols dominate, they substitute, and they ruin. Clearly in ancient Near Eastern culture, we got a picture right into this, right? In, in the book of Acts here in Ephesus, is a Greek city, okay? In the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, idols dominated, clearly. If this text tells us anything, is that the worship of their idol, their goddess, was extremely important to them. Temples, uh, temples were constructed to worship the gods like Artemis here. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt, wilderness, childbirth, chastity, all these different things. That's who Artemis represented to them. They, they believed she was, quote, in our text, the divine majesty. And their worship was so dominant in their culture that men like Demetrius, our, our character here who kind of started this whole mess, Demetrius, it says, made a good income selling artifacts that he crafted in her image, made out of precious metals. So that tells me that a lot of people in their culture were buying these things, right? It was dominant. Idolatry dominated. Their worship was so dominant that this man could make a living off it. The city clerk, even he's trying to settle this angry crowd down. How does he do it? By reassuring them, don't worry. Artemis is your god. Everyone knows it. That's basically what he does. So don't rip their limbs off. Let's chill out because we're going to get arrested. That's what he says, basically, doesn't he? In Acts chapter 17, do you remember when Paul was in Athens? Athens, the intellectual capital of the earth. Consider um, Princeton and um, Yale and Harvard and Oxford all being in one city. That's Athens. The intellectual capital of the world was filled with idols. We learned this, quote, filled with idols, Acts chapter 17. Idolatry dominated. And they wouldn't have denied it either. (laughs) They would have said, yeah, of course. It's ridiculous. You don't? You don't worship idols? Now, I know what we might be thinking here, okay? Oh, we, we might be thinking, oh, how primitive. How archaic. We're enlightened now. We're smarter than this. We have science. <laughs> so we know that this is all ridiculous. We don't worship idols anymore. This is all old stuff. But I want you to consider something one author called the heart of American culture as expressive individualism. Okay, this is his words. Expressive individualism. The heart, the heart and soul 
of an, any, any individual of the United States of America is expressive individualism. And here's what, what he means by this. Isn't it true that in our culture, the mantra, in the religious mantra, is that no one has the right to tell anyone else how they should worship, who they should worship, what they should worship, when they should worship. That's all a very private and personal thing. And we all have the right to worship God how we see fit. Right? Isn't that the mantra of American values? Of course it is. Exp he calls it expressive individualism. So I, as an individual, have the right to express my religious faith however I want. And I think as Americans, we're all kind of sitting back and saying, yeah, I agree with that. Well, that's because you're American. <laughs> right? And, and, and friends, th that's not entirely wrong. I think there's a certain amount of truth to this. This is what makes America America on a certain level. It may be true that it is, and it is true that no one has the right to force anyone else to accept what you believe about God. That's, of course, wrong. That's how America was founded. But this is not what's meant today by this. It's not meant that we have the right to worship as we see fit. It takes what we worship as equally valid as anything else. It's basically saying we don't really know what's true. We, I don't have the right to say this is true or isn't. You see, that, that's kind of what's crept into American culture. And that's what, hap that's what we mean by expressive individualism. That's the subtext in all this. That all of our versions of God are equally valid. So you worship your God, I worship my God, and it's all good. Right? What's so different? This is my point in bringing this up. We kind of cluck our tongues and look down at our, our primitive ancestors and say, oh, how ridiculous that they worshiped a God in their own making. But don't we do the same? Don't we, don't we kind of make up what we want about God, say it's just as valid as, as what anyone else has made up about God, and that's okay? That's, we're all doing it still. We don't craft idols out of it anymore in our culture, by and large. But we still do it. We're creating our version of God. <clears throat> It's, not the, it's the same exact thing happening right here in our text. And they were just more self-aware. They, they had more of the ability to say, yeah, I worship a God I made up. <laughs> we don't like that, uh, as Americans, as moderns, we don't even like to talk about God because it seems spooky and supernatural, right? So we won't even say that. But if we do, we certainly won't have the nerve to say, I made him up, <laughs> Will we? Paul said in Acts chapter 17, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver, made with human hands or by design or skill. What he's saying is, you can't make up God. God has to reveal himself to you as who he is. Isn't it just obvious? If you make up God, it's, you made him up. It's obviously not God if you created him. You can't create God. In our text, Paul says, man-made gods are no gods at all. Actually, that's not Paul. That's Demetrius quoting Paul. He's going to the Ephesians. Apparently, Paul, this was a popular thing Paul was saying because idolatry was so prevalent. He was going all over the land saying, man-made gods are no gods at all. Demetrius knew his sermon. And Demetrius says to the people, Paul is saying, man-made gods are no gods at all. They're not. And that's just obvious, isn't it? If you make it, it can't be God. <laughs> God makes us, it's not vice versa. 
You might not call it God. Friends, idolatry has dominated the human heart since the dawn of time, and it continues to this day. We might not call it God, but, it's your, but, it, but these things are our God because they bring us worth, safety, significance, identity. It might not be a, a, a being in our minds. It might be an object. It might be a person. Paul says that coveting is idolatry. Desiring other people's possessions is idolatry. Because our God is what makes us whole and happy. It, what's, it, it, what's, it, our gods give us significance. See, and we'll get into this more in a second. It is just as relevant today to talk about idols. Friends, I want you to think about what idols you might have today. What things do you think are saving you that you need to be saved? I know that's a very religious word, right? I, I don't think religiously. What do you mean by saved? I mean happy, right? What, I, I, mean, I mean accomplished, approved, right, righteous. What do you think that you need to do to accomplish these things? That's your God. What gods might you have this morning, friends? It's very relevant. The reason idolatry is so ubiquitous and so timeless is very simply because idols substitute a human need that you are desperate for. That's our second point. Idols substitute. Idols attempt to answer the deepest human needs and most profound human questions that we have. If you're sitting here this morning, you have deep human needs. Profound questions about life, about origins, about where you're from, about what you need. Okay? And I'm going to show you today that these should point you to something greater. Okay, and I hope that you can, this makes sense to you. These are all just cheap substitutes. Idols are cheap substitutes, though, that try to answer the question of your human needs. They're the scent of the flower, not the flower itself. And this is at, this is at the core. These needs are the core of what it means to be a human being, a person. And we see it clearly in our text um, that the very basic human needs that idols claim to fulfill. And what are these things? Well, Scripture calls the perversion of these needs. You remember that classic text in 1 John? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of that points to three basic human needs from which the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are a perversion of their satisfaction, you see? And they are, they are three things. And one author talks about them like this. They are passions, possessions, and positions. You need passion. You just kind of hear this right now. Every single person in this room needs passion. And my proof of that are teenagers. Right? Puppy love. How many people, and we, we kind of say, oh, those foolish young people, they think they're in love. How many people to this day, right, we, we, we sort of mock them, but we're doing that because of our own insecurities, by the way, if you're a teenager's here. But how many people to this day, as an adult, wish you could feel like that again? Right? We just kind of seem to have all of the passion sucked out of us. And, we, and, and, you know, just to make our feel, self feel good and glorious, we say, oh, those silly teens. <laughs> but we need passion. We need possession. You say, oh, that sounds very materialistic. I like this church. Right? Maybe you do. Oh, l- let me. <laughs> you need possession. Let me, I'm going to explain to you more fully what I mean. So don't, don't leave yet. Um, and you need position. You need passion, you need possession, you need position. I'm going to explain to you this more fully so that you can understand. Demetrius, 
our character in this text and the situation happening with the Ephesians help us understand that their cries of the heart for passion, possession, and position are all demonstrated in their anger and the disruption of the, the, the removal of their God. When their God was compromised, their passions were compromised, their possessions and their positions were compromised. That's, where they were, that's why they were so furious. And friends, when your God is compromised, your passion, your possession, and your position will be compromised too. All of them. So let's look at this. <clears throat> Demetrius was greatly disturbed that the goddess Artemis was being undermined by Paul's gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying, that's not a God. That's not God. That can't save you. That can't provide your needs. That can't fulfill your deepest passions. It's no God at all. And he's saying, it's not a God. There's only one God. So they're greatly disturbed because their savior, their idol, their God was being undermined and therefore their passions, their possessions, and their positions were undermined and challenged. Demetrius worshipped this God in verse 27. That's what it says. Demetrius and the Ephesians worshipped this God. Now what does that mean? It means to describe worth. That's what the word worship means. It's very simple. Now, it might be easy to miss this point here, but Demetrius and the Ephesians viewed Artemis as their source of human passion and emotional satisfaction. You know that you all have, that's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is sort of your appetite for joy and for pleasure and for food. It's like fleshly kind of stuff, right? It's your appetite for these things. You need pleasure. You need happiness, these are all good things, but the perversion of them is idolatry. And the Bible calls these the lusts of the flesh. Artemis was seen as the source of passion, the fulfillment of emotional completion. See, don't we do that with each other? All throughout our lives, we're looking for a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend to complete our passions. Physically, emotionally, relationally. We think that we'll be emotionally whole and secure. Our passions will be fulfilled if I'm just married. Or maybe we've gotten over that, okay? <laughs> and we say, okay, you know what? That's not true, but ki kids. Maybe it might, my daughter, right? A, a good relationship with my family, I'm going to be emotionally whole and happy. So we, we take our passions like these, these men of old, and they saw Artemis as the source for their emotional passions, being completed and fulfilled. Demetrius saw this God as his means, did you see this in the text, of monetary provision. He was getting rich off of this, and he was using his riches to satisfy his fleshly passions, to glut himself in food and sex and entertainment and pleasure. See, take Artemis out of the picture, and all that goes away. How will I have emotional wholeness Enjoy without it. Isn't that a good question? See, without Artemis, but we can fill in the blank, right? How can I have emotional joy and pleasure without fill in the blank? Chances are, what you're, if you're really honest and you're really self-aware and, and you fill in that blank, if it's anything but the Lord Jesus Christ, that's your God. You just found him. That's your idol. So he saw the earthly material provided by Artemis is the fulfillment of his emotional satisfaction. What's the fulfillment of your emotional satisfaction? For so many of us, it's family, isn't it? Being approved of by a dad, right? 
Let's, let's continue. Demetrius also saw Artemis as a source of possession. So, right? Passion, possession. The lust of the eyes. Possession. We see, we desire, we want. That's, the Bible calls the sinful demonstration of that as, co- uh, as coveting. We see something, we want it. What he saw around him in the world, such as riches, such as land or family, made him feel safe. Made him feel like if he could possess these things, then he would be worth something, wouldn't he? He would be an accomplished person. So this is the, the, the desire for possession. We, it's all in us, and we're all created to want to possess something. Friends, that's not bad, and we're going to explain that in a second. But when we desire to possess the things of this world to make us whole and happy, that's when it becomes an idol, and that's when it crushes us. Finally, Demetrius also credited Artemis as his source for position, and oh, this one is so important. That is his identity, who he was. Who are you? Who are we as people? Our identity. Are we great? This is the pride of life. Are we great? Are we merciful? How are we known? This is who we want to be to the rest of the world. What does the rest of the world see me as? And and for, for many of us, sometimes it's a lot of different things. Some people want to be seen as powerful. Some people want to be seen as successful. Some people want to be seen as moral. Remember Commodus the Merciful. (laughs) I'm going to talk about him a little bit more later. The crowd chanted for two hours, great is Artemis. Imagine a worship service for two hours chanting the same thing. We get a little frustrated with each other for for an hour and a half, and we do lots of different things, (laughs) right? For two hours, they chanted, great is Artemis, and they said, we, the Ephesians, are the guardians of the temple of her, uh, of the great Artemis and her image. We're her guardians. You see, they're positioning themselves as great. That's what they're doing, because they want to be great. They want to be associated with something great. How, do you, how else do you explain the foolish thrill that we feel when someone else wins a sporting event that we had nothing to do with. Doesn't it kind of make you feel great? I'm from New England. I wear the shirt, right? I don't, but, but isn't it true, though, that somehow we feel connected to the process? And, and you know, we say that's, that's ridiculous, that's silly. I don't think so. I don't think it is. Because I think our family often defines who we are. It kind of makes us kind of sense our place in the world. We want to be associated with great things, don't we? Who doesn't want that? We want to do great things. We want to be great. But if we want to be great so that our name can be known, that's the pride of life. You see, all idolatry is is taking something good and perverting it so that we get glory. Right? That's all it is. So for two hours, they're chanting, great as Artemis. So, and buried deep within our, our human heart is the desire to be great and to do great things. And if, we're, if we are the guardians of the great God, 
made in the great God's image, wouldn't that have to mean by default that we're great? If we are made in the image of this great God, Artemis, aren't we great by association? Isn't that true? If we're created in the image of God as Christians, wouldn't that give us significance and importance? You see what, you see what I'm getting at here? You see where this is leading? When we make misconnections, though, we lose the heart of it, and it completely crushes us. Buried, this is buried deep in our heart. For the, for the Ephesians, Artemis provided that glorious position as guardians. We're guardians. All humankind... All humankind, every single person sitting in this room right now, created, you are created in the image of God. You have all these three basic needs fulfilled, not in the created thing, not in the person sitting on the side of you or maybe on your lap. It might not be your child. All humankind, created in the image of God, have all of these basic needs fulfilled, not in the created thing, but in your God, your maker, the creator, Jesus Christ. That's it. Someone once said, you can have the whole world and Jesus versus just Jesus and you would have nothing more if you had just Jesus. I totally messed that up. It was more eloquent than that. <laughs> Do you understand what, what they're saying? You can have Jesus or Jesus plus the whole world and if you just had Jesus, you'd have just as much. You see, friends, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of your passion he is the fulfillment of your possession, and he is the fulfillment of your position. And only he can fully satisfy all three of those basic human needs. Period. Gods fashioned in human form are no gods at all. They are dumb, worthless idols because they only provide the smell of the flower and not the flower itself. It only is a tease. It's a hint at something greater, but that thing can never fulfill what the greater thing can. They are fallen humanity's way of, of filling what was lost when we turned away from God. In Eden, I want you to hear this. Consider now the right demonstration of these things, the fulfillment of these things in a way that connects us with our great God. In Eden, Adam's passions were generously supplied to him by his God. His greatest emotional needs, even his fleshly, physical needs were fulfilled in his unbroken fellowship with his maker. Adam could glut himself in the pleasure of intimacy with God in heaven. And it was uninterrupted. Imagine that. All of his passions were perfectly satisfied with his relationship with his king and his God. In Edom, Eden, Adam possessed his maker. This might sound wrong. It may sound a little off to you in your mind if you're a Christian, but let me explain a little bit later. In Eden, Adam possessed his maker, and his, and his maker possessed him. That which he saw, that which he desired, when he looked, you remember that lust of the eyes? When he looked, he saw God, wanted God, and got him. See? What he desired with his eyes, what he most wanted to possess, was the Lord whom Adam knew and likewise whom the Lord knew. Isn't that incredible? In Eden, Adam was accepted, loved, and approved. His position was ruler and governor over all the earth and the image of God to all creation. What amazing greatness and dignity that he had, didn't he? Adam was great 
because he was perfectly connected to his great God. Did you know that God created you to satisfy your passions? You see, a, a, a wrong way that we can go, and this has happened throughout church history in the church and also pagan religions, is that passions are evil and wrong or base and senseless. So kind of escape them. Be very moral. Don't, don't get too happy or too sad. That's just going to mess you up, right? Don't have sex for pleasure, right? Like all these kind of, these are all earthly, fleshly, evil things. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that God wants you to glut yourself in his passion, he wants you to be exhilarated. He wants you in your marriage to be in love with your wife or your husband. To feel great romance for them. That's what scripture says. So did you know that? That God wants to satisfy your passions. He wants to provide for you great possession. And again, we'll explain to you more what that means. That doesn't mean he wants you to give you, to give you a big pile of money. Okay? <laughs> he is your possession. And he wants to position you. Do you know who you are? Do you know who God made you to be? You feel like you're a bum. Well, you know, my dad, my dad was a jerk. He beat me up. He left my mom. He was a drug addict. He's in jail. And, you know, you just kind of feel like that's my heritage. That's me. No, it's not. God created you in his image, friend. You have a different dad. And all of us need different. Even as good as our dads are, we all need different dads. Because our dads aren't really our dads. They're just there to point us to the dad, the great one that doesn't fail us, that doesn't screw up, that doesn't beat us up, right? That's who they're supposed to point to. Did you know that you were created for great nobility, for great passion, for great possession? God gave all of the earth to Adam and Eve, all of it and everything in it. That was their possession, all the woolly animals and all the little fishies and all the trees. And he said, rule, be creative, invent, build. It's all yours. It was never meant to replace him, though. It was always meant to point to him. You know the reason you like to build, the reason you like to work, the reason you like to love is because God is a builder and he is a worker and he is a lover. And that's in you because of God. Would you allow all of your deep passions and desires and positions to point you to God in heaven? That's why you do those things. I'm getting so ahead of myself. God created you these, for, he created me and you for these things, friends. And only he does these things for us. It's only when we're in him, when we sacrifice our false idols, our husbands, our wives, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, and say, these are not my gods, and worship the God, that you actually can start really loving your boyfriends and your girlfriends and your work. They don't control you anymore. Every dumb, man-made God we worship is only a cheap substitute, and that's why, this leads to our first point, idols completely ruin us. The text says man-made gods are no gods at all. And if they're no gods at all, that means that they can't fulfill our deepest passions, they can't, they can't provide for us any possession, and they can't position us as great or glorious. If there are no gods at all, that they will not fulfill you. Do you. Now, okay, I'm going back to Commodus now. Do you remember that scene in the movie Gladiator when evil Commodus, how many people have seen this? You say, Kyle, you watch too many movies. You're always mentioning movies. You're right, I have. 
Okay, let's move on. Um, <laughs> so there's a scene in the movie Gladiator when evil Commodus um, has that heartbreaking scene with his dad. Remember that? It's at the very beginning of the movie. And he, and he says to him, now you remember Commodus if you've seen the movie. This guy was a bad dude. He was crazy. But this is what he says to to his dad at the very beginning of this. Just hear these words. This is so powerful. He said, you wrote to me once. He's talking to his dad. He said, you wrote to me once listing the four chief virtues. Wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. He said, as I, as I read this list, I knew I didn't have any of these. None of my virtues were on your list. Even then, it was as if you didn't want me as your son. Oh. Isn't that the just life? We just know something doesn't want us. And we're just trying to get it. We're just trying to get it back so that they want us. He said, I search the faces of the gods for ways to make you proud. Who's really is God? He's, he's, <laughs> oh, I could preach a sermon on that. He's, he's going after God to get his real God. Don't we do that? We go to church for the same reason. You know, God, I'm sick. I, I want a good marriage. My kids are a mess. I really, I, I don't make a whole lot of money. You know, things are just kind of messed up. Can you do all this stuff for me? Who's our real God, <laughs> right? I, I search the faces of the God to make you proud. One kind word, one full hug, where you pressed me to your chest and held me tight would have been like the sun on my heart for a thousand years. All I've ever wanted was to live up to you, Caesar, Father. I would have butchered the whole world if you would just love me. Wow. Doesn't that say it all? One kind word, one full hug from his dad would have been like the sun on his heart for a thousand years. And, and could I suggest to us this morning that our idols crush us because we want that from them and they don't give it to us. And we know it. Sometimes, for a little while, it seems like they will, but then it's gone. No sun, no hug, no kind word. If only your dad, think about this in the sense of commonness, if only his dad could do, give him that hug, then a thousand different people could do it and it wouldn't matter, right? If all that mattered to him was the intimacy and love and affection from his father, then he could get it all from everything else in the world and he would never have it. And friend, here's my point. You desperately need affection from God in heaven because he made you. And you are going to look for it everywhere but him because you don't know him yet and you'll never get it. Turn to him. Embrace him. Get that one full hug. Because once you, anyone in this room has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, you know what I mean, right? You've gotten that full hug. <laughs> you know that sun has shined on you. It's interesting in Scripture that the words, do you remember this passage of Scripture? The words in heaven that we hear from our dad, our father in heaven, what are they when we get to heaven? Well done. Well done. How many people in this room know how much you want those words from your parents? Well done. 
It's like life gets breathed into us. But you know, there aren't just enough well-dones in the world, are there? You want to know why? Because you don't need well-done from your, your earthly dad, and you don't need well-done from your boss. You don't need well-done from your wife. You need it from God, your real dad, your real boss, your real bridegroom. You need well-done from him, or you're never going to feel it. You're never going to have it. Well done. In Christ, listen to these amazing words. In Christ, God sees you, if you've put faith in Jesus, God sees you as always have make, making the right choice your whole life. Imagine never having barked at your neighbor or your wife or your, or your kids. Imagine never having looked at pornography. Imagine never having gotten drunk. Imagine never selling yourself and all, all the things that we do to just create havoc and chaos in our lives. You know that in Christ, God sees you as making the right choice every time? That's Jesus' gift to you. And that's why when we get to heaven, he says, well done to us. That's the world we're headed for. Isn't that incredible? The crushing emptiness that we always find in our idols, the idols we worship, should prove to us that there are no gods at all. They're not, they don't work. They're no gods at all. We would just about do anything for that full hug, for that kind word, so that sun would shine on, on our hearts for a thousand years. Do you recall in, in the, the Old Testament that brutal practice of the pagans where um, they would offer up their children as sacrifice to the Baals and to Molech, these, like these foreign gods. They would literally lay their children and sacrifice them, kill them on their gods, burning statue hands. Horrific. And we look back at that and say, wow, how brutal. How primitive, how cruel, how horrifying. And it is, right? No, no question about it. But friends, don't you know that you, we sacrifice each other on, the, on, the, idol, on the, the altars of our gods too? Maybe in different ways, but we overwork and we don't see our kids and we yell at them because they're not living up to our standards because our standards really are about our own, uh, our own way that we affirm ourselves, right? We mistreat them, we abuse them, we don't see them. We do that not just to our kids but to each other because we worship another God in anything, right? We'd burn the whole world. We'd butcher the whole thing. We'd light it up in a second, just like Commodus said. And, we, and my proof for that is the way that we just walk all over each other so that our God can be pleased. That's what happens. These gods crush us. That lifeless God still doesn't shine its light on our hearts. After all we've done and all the people we've walked on, we still don't get it. We only get a momentary aroma of a flower we never get to see. See? There's a book by Peter Scazzaro um, that he wrote. It's an emotionally healthy um, spirituality. And he talks about um, the book Great Expectations and mentions Miss Havisham. Havisham. You guys ever heard of Great Expectations and right, Charles Dickens? He writes in this book about Miss Havisham. She, he says that she's the daughter of a wealthy man. And one day she received a letter at 840 in the morning. How many people know this story? Me neither. I, I read this for the first time, so don't feel bad. 
So in Great Expectations, there's this woman, Miss Havisham, and she's, a wealth, uh, she's, she's the daughter of a wealthy man, and she receives a letter at 8.40 in the morning on her wedding day. And that letter tells her that her husband-to-be wasn't coming. Devastating. At 8.40 in the morning, she stopped all the clocks in the house at the precise time the letter arrived and spent the rest of her life in her bridal clothes, which eventually turned yellow. And wearing only one shoe, since she had not yet put on the other one at the time of the disaster, even as an old lady, she remained crippled by the weight of that crushing blow. It was as if, quote, everything in the room and house had stopped. And friends, that's what happens to us when we worship another god. We might dress ourselves up better, but it's always there, reminding us that we failed it, that we didn't live up to it. So she decided to live in her past, in the disappointment of the god she worshipped and not having it fulfilled. Oh, how our gods ruin us, don't they? Don't they ruin us? Everything in our lives just sort of stops. We, we hope that around the corner, that, that full hug, that kind word is waiting for us. We smell it, but we never get it. But there's hope. You say, oh, what a miserable sermon, man. Come on, cheer up. There's hope. <laughs> there is a gift from God in this. You might not see it, but there is a wonderful gift from God in this. Did you know this? You were born to have your passions fulfilled, to possess what you see, to be positioned as blessed and great and glorious. You're born for this. Your desire for it and your never being satisfied in it in any earthly thing should point you to what does. It shouldn't crush you. It should say, it's out there for me, but I, I haven't found it yet. Your desire for this and you're never finding it in, in, in any idol, that's God's gift to you. The gift simply is that you know you need these things, but you also know nothing has satisfied it. That's God's gift to you. Something can satisfy it, friend. That's the good news. You can have it. There is something above this world that can give all of this to you. This moment, this moment by faith in Jesus Christ, you can be reconnected to your great passion, your great possession, and your great position. It's not on the side of you. You can't see it in this world. It's above you. It's in God. It's, a real, it's realized in your relationship with God through Christ. The object is God. The flower is God. Every good thing um, he has made should be like an aroma leading you to him. He completes your passions. He is your inheritance, your possession. He is your identity, your position. Listen to Psalm 16. This is exactly what David's talking about in Psalm 16. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You're my God. Not my wife, not my treasure, not my kingdom. You're my God. I have no good apart from you, he says. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Oh, friend, keep running after them. Don't listen to me. Walk out the door. Your sorrows will multiply. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. <laughs> right? They'll multiply. 
The Lord alone is my chosen portion and my cup, my possession. The Lord alone is my chosen portion and my cup. He holds my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, my possession. The Lord is your inheritance. He is your possession. You see it? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, your position. I, God is on the side of me, my great God. Therefore, my heart is glad, passion, and my whole being rejoices. Oh, my whole being rejoices. You say, I've gotten that in a girl once. I felt like my whole being rejoiced. Well, it won't last long. I don't mean to discourage you. It won't. But the reason it does is because it's supposed to point you to the one who will always make it last for you. That's God's gift to you, you see? Have you made some passion your God, some possession your God, some position your God? What might it be? Do you have a passion, God? Maybe your God is some passion, unfulfilled, some possession, some position. What might it be? Only the Lord can satisfy. Listen to Moses, Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to how he demonstrates this. By faith, Moses, excuse me, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Position. He rejected it. Right, that's a, that's a good position. The son of Pharaoh's daughter, that comes with power and strength, prestige and wealth and riches and all sorts of things. I, I'm rejecting that position. I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because in Psalm 16, those who follow after other gods will only find misery. It's not worth it. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of Egypt's passion. He rejected his position. He rejected those passions that could feed his pleasures. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt's possession. See? He didn't want Egypt's position. He didn't want the passion that came from that position. And he didn't want the possessions of Egypt. He wanted God. For he was looking to the reward. You see? He was looking to the reward. Capital T. Not... A reward, little a. See? That's all this world can do for us. Give us examples of what it will be in its ultimate expression when we go to heaven. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He knew there was a greater passion, a greater position, a greater possession, and it wasn't worth sacrificing those ultimate passions and possessions for just little ones that this earth could offer. Moses could do this because he knew that the positions, passions, and possessions of this world were not the flower. They were just the aroma of the flower. And he could give them all up because he knew in the end the final possession, the final passion, the, um, the, the final position was found in Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen. We can only find real joy in the things of this world if we know that they are road signs to the joy. And by the way, this leads us to loving this world 
and people in this world more fully and with greater health and joy. And why? Because we know they're not the end. They point to the end. I love my kids because there is a great love they point to. Because God loves me as his kid. I love my wife because there's a greater love that my wife points to. The, the, the bridegroom that loves me. I love my work because it points to the great worker. I, I seek to be great because he's great. We should, and we got to see in this answers, don't we? You want your dad to love you because you want the dad to love you. You want your spouse to love you because you want the bridegroom to love you. You want affirmation and applause from your peers because you want the affirmation and applause from your God. It's all in there because of that. You are desperate to hear from God, well done. And friends, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And God will look at you one day when you approach him in his holy throne and say, well done. Come and get it. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord, for your word and your, the power of your word. God, thank you that only you are Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would cast off our dumb idols and find our greatest pleasure, our greatest passion, and our greatest possession. Our great, excuse me, our greatest passion, possession, and position in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're, not here, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ like this, would you just take your sin to him and say, God, I've worshipped everything but you. And that's been sin. That's my sin. I've disobeyed you. I've worshipped other gods. And that's why I've disobeyed you. Some, something besides you is more important. But I trust that Jesus Christ came because he loves me and he died for my sins. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works of righteousness. Come to Jesus, trust in what he's done for you, and hear those amazing words from your Father, well done. And if that's you, friend, would you please just come, come and talk to someone after church. Come and talk to me. We want to rejoice with you. This is the happiest day of your life. God, we just love you so much. We thank you for our church. And God, if as believers in Jesus Christ we've lost our way, the shadow of some other old God in our life has kind of risen up. I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of your great power and great love for us. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Just bless us now as we transition to communion. In Jesus' name, amen.